Acts chapter 1 is where we're going to begin, but we're not going to stay there very long. We are moving through our purpose, and the message is designed as our purpose as a local body of believers. However, it is also true, it is, it is nothing unique to Goodland Bible Church. It is true for any uh, body of believers you belong to, and many of these elements are practical issues for you personally as an individual. And so as we think about purpose, uh, have you noticed that there's a lot of things that have no purpose? You're like, why do those exist? i got a few examples. First, where's Katie? I think she... Katie, no, she must be in the nursery. Good. What is this thing? What'd you say, Caleb? A snuggly. What is a snuggly? It's a blanket with arms. There's no purpose there. Whoever invented that, there's no purpose. I got another one. What is this? <laughs> Obviously, my kids are up on uh, things that have no purpose. It's a pillow pit. But then there are other things, have you noticed, that have are used for more than their purpose, like a flat screwdriver. Now, if you showed this to any of us in this room that are mechanically inclined, you would say that is anything probably but a screwdriver. It's a pry bar. It's a chisel. Uh, what? Paint can opener. That's what I used this one for last night. Uh, paint can opener. So uh, this is used beyond its purpose. In fact, have you ever noticed you can't go to the store and buy a flat screw anymore, flat-headed screw? You can't do it because we don't use it for screw anymore. Here's another one. Duct tape. Does duct tape used for its purposes? I don't know as if there is uh, one stated purpose for duct tape. What's that? Oh. But no, see, no, see, there's, you can do so much more with this. There's no purpose. Uh, this is beyond its purpose. The idea is, uh, if you use a screwdriver, uh, in fact, I couldn't find mine, but I've got a screwdriver that's bent clear over. Do you know why? Because I used it as a pry bar too many times. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thanks, Caleb. I appreciate the sound effects. It's helping. <laughs> so. But, when you use something that for something that it is not designed for, then it loses its essential value. And ultimately, like the flat-headed screw, loses its essence, its purpose. At this point, we kind of turn back to the direction of the church. As never before in the history of our country, Christian faith and practice is under attack. From health care to evangelism, to growing antagonism towards those in the church. So it is, so what is the purpose of the church? What is the purpose of the church? Why does the church exist? I asked the question this morning in Sunday school as we were looking on another issue. I said, is the word of God still relevant? And that was in regards to marriage. Is it still relevant in regards to marriage? The culture has redefined it, but should it be redefined? You see, the church in the modern era has bought into the mega mentality. And Spurgeon said the church that brings people in with their song and their music like the opera house is not a church any longer. You see, if it is only that we are to become a lobbyist group or to fill the pews, we have missed the purpose of the church. 
The purpose of the church is unique and it is different than any other organization. So is the purpose of the church to change culture? No. Church was never tasked to change culture. Is it the purpose of the church to be a lobbyist group? No. It's not the purpose of the church. So what is the purpose of the church? Well, our purpose, stated in our church, is nothing unique. It has come right out of Matthew chapter 28. The scripture uh, there points to these four elements of the purpose. Our purpose is to reach people with the gospel message of Christ, to equip believers to grow in their faith, to minister together, and to glorify God with their lives. Today we get part one of two parts of these four elements that are found in our purpose statement. And as we prepare to do that, let's go to our Lord in prayer. Father, we do thank you and praise you for the privilege that it is to bow our heads before you today. Lord, we recognize that the purpose of the church is essential to understanding why we are here. It is easily confused in this world of of many different voices. What really we ought to be doing. You have those in the church saying that we ought to be a lobbyist group. You have those in the church that say we ought to be changing the culture. You have those in the church that say we ought to be this mega church, entertaining those. But we recognize that that was never the purpose, never the design of the church. Lord, we ask your blessing on the time we spend in your word. And as many of us will move from here and go to our individual local bodies, I pray that you would bless and encourage them with the truth that we find here. For those of us who are going to remain, I pray that we would take up the, the challenge to reach out to our friends and to our neighbors that do not know you as Savior that we would avoid the clutter of the worldliness yammering that goes on and help us get right to the point to understand what our purpose is, that this body would grow, that your name would be glorified in Goodland, Kansas and around the world as we send so many out from us today. Lord, we love you. We thank you for the time we can spend in your word. I pray that you would bless our time in it. In your son's name we pray. Amen. This morning we have the opportunity to ask really the question, and it is a personal question to our church body. Where are we going? What are we going to do? We look at the dawning of a new year. And we recognize that there is a role that we must play as individuals. And there is a role that we must play as a local church. But in order for our church to be healthy and reproduce and grow, what is it going to take? What is it going to take? So today, the first of two messages is designed to cause us to think through the purpose of our church body. And facing the new year, I want you to know, even though most of our leaders aren't here today, uh, the leaders of our church are going to task several outreach and discipleship tools within this next year with the intended purpose of fulfilling our biblical purpose. And so as you think about this message, let it soak into your hearts and into your minds. And be ready, because when we come back at the annual meeting, we're going to introduce three or four new incentives that we're going to be doing as a church. And you're going to have to play a vital role in those. So, as a purpose of our church, this is the purpose. To reach people with the gospel message of Christ. To equip believers to grow in their faith. To minister together and to glorify God with our lives. Ultimately, it all boils down to that last statement. To glorify God in our lives. That is our key purpose. That is why we are here. That is what makes us unique. Unlike any other organization in the world, we are an organism that is designed to glorify God. And that is why we are here. So how do we do that? Well, the first of the four elements is this. Not that. 
It's not supposed to be called Journey to Christmas. That was last week's. But instead, it's supposed to be called Our Purpose. And as we look at it, our first purpose is reaching people. Reaching people. Our second purpose is to equip believers. And our third is a plan for the future. What is our plan for the future? And I'm going to task you as individuals to consider that in a moment. But as we consider our purpose, we must understand what it's going to take to reach people. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 says this, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. Now normally we would consider this passage as we're sending a missionary out to the remotest parts of the earth. But what we forget to understand is what Christ has called us to do. And the first is this task that is given. And this task given is, is not yet complete. The context is very telling as to what this task is. Notice all that is taking place. If you move back earlier into the context, you will recognize that Jesus is preparing to ascend into heaven. And he's soon going to return. But for a time, he's going to leave the work to the disciples. The work of verse 8. The question is, one that they've been asking all along. Look at verse 6. As Jesus is preparing to ascend to heaven, he's gathered them all together, and this is what they ask him. They say, so when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it the time, is it at this time, that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? See, all the way through the Gospels, when we come past Matthew chapter 11, chapter 12, Christ says, you know what, I'm not going to restore the kingdom now. I offered it in the first 11 chapters. They rejected it. They said my power was from Beelzebub. Therefore, I am no longer offering the kingdom. And of course, is that according to God's plan? Absolutely, that was according to God's plan. And so chapter 12, moving into chapter 13, Christ begins to speak in parables. And the disciples ask him, Jesus, why are you speaking in parables? And he says, because the kingdom of heaven is, is not at hand for them any longer. And so the rest of the Gospels move us through that time into a transitionary time so that the church could be born, so that the part of the Abrahamic covenant that says all nations of the earth will be blessed through Abraham can be fulfilled. And so if we are in this very important time that has lasted 2,000 years, what is our purpose? Christ comes to them at this point and they've asked him this question. He said, okay, we're, we're through the death. We're through the resurrection. Praise God, we're out on this hill. We're ready. Bring on the kingdom. And Jesus says to them in verse 7, It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. Can you imagine the disciples that day? They've been through a whirlwind of emotions over the last month. They have watched Jesus ascend into or descend into Jerusalem on the triumphal entry. They've seen Jesus all of a sudden hauled off and and crucified on the cross. They saw Jesus placed in the tomb. They saw the empty tomb. And then Jesus appearing among them. In fact, the passage we read in 1 Corinthians says that Jesus appeared to over 500 individuals. And now they're all gathered here. Jesus, we're excited. Let's bring on the kingdom. Let's get this going. And Jesus says, it's not yet time. Not time. All of a sudden, all the range of emotions all comes flooding back. Wait a minute. Okay, now what's going on, Lord? What are you doing now? Last time you said it's not yet time. You died on the cross. You rose again. Now what are you going to do? Jesus says this. 
But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come. Remember, he promised the Holy Spirit back in John's Gospel. Has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. Jesus looks at him and he says this. Instead of being concerned with the timing of the coming kingdom, you have a task. You're going to be witnesses. This act of being a witness should occupy the time of the believer until Christ returns. It does not matter who you are. If you know Christ as Savior, you are to be a witness. Have you ever left your kids to do a job while you run out for 10 minutes? Like, okay, I want you to vacuum the upstairs, vacuum the downstairs, and vacuum all the stairs. You know very good and well it's going to take them longer than 10 minutes, right? But you also know that they should at least have a start on it by the time you come back in 10 minutes. So you leave, you come back, what do you expect to find? Them untangling the cord? Plugging it in? Uh Uh-uh, you weren't doing what I told you to do. You expect them to be all done, laying on the couch, say, I did it. I tried that once as a kid, it does not work. You see, the idea is when you tell a child to do something, you want it to be done. You say, I'm going to be back in 10 minutes. You have 10 minutes. Get to work. And yet, you know very good and well when they have not gotten to work because they're not halfway through the job. They're just starting or they're already done. You know they didn't do uh, the work. So when Christ says this, I want you to be witnesses, my question is, are you like that child who's not being a witness? You say, well, there'll be time. You know, Christ hasn't come back yet. There'll there'll be time. What is the message then? We're going to build on this whole theme. What is the message? We have the task. We are to be witnesses. What is the message to take? The word witness is from a Greek word that we get our word martyr from. Get an idea of what the message is? If you are to be a martyr to give this message then this message is a divine message. And that is the specific usage here. Christ is calling his disciples to bear a divine message. Ultimately, this would be from many followers of Christ, leading to the surrendering of their earthly life, sharing the gospel, continuing to be witnesses of the divine message of Jesus Christ. So what is the divine message? Well, John twenty thirty one uh, says this. says that if you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that by believing you may have life in his name. That is the message that the disciples who stood there as Jesus ascended to heaven, that is what they were to tell the world. And that is what you and I are to tell the world. You see, they preached sin. Well, that's a novel concept in our world today. They preached sin, sacrifice, and victory. They said, you are a sinner. Christ died to pay the terrible price of sin. He rose victorious, giving you life eternal if you believe in him. That was the message of the witness. And do you know what it cost them? Out of 12 apostles, 11 of them died a martyr's death. A grotesque martyr's death. Out of the rest of the believers, they were persecuted by uh, the emperors of Rome, driving them into the remotest parts of the earth. So we have a message to take. We have a task. You are a witness. You are to take the gospel message. And then Christ gives the roadmap. Christ gives the roadmap. We're going to come back to all this here in just a little bit, but Christ gives the roadmap. What is the roadmap? First, you start Jerusalem, where the epicenter is, where everything's going to boil out of. Then you have uh, Judea. 
the surrounding areas around Jerusalem. Then you have Samaria, the, that area where there could be problems when you start entering into there. Because uh, they, they are half Jew and, and half Gentile. And then even to the remotest parts of the earth. And this is most likely a glimpse at the city of Rome. Rather than the individual tribal groups, this is probably Rome that he has in mind. Well, here's the question. So these guys suit up, right? And they plug in their laptops and they start a Facebook page, right? No, did they have technology? Not at all. Do you know what they had? How many of you have lips? Okay, only half of us have lips. Okay, let me ask this one. How many of you have feet? At least one of them. Yes. You know what they had? They had feet and they had lips. Christ said, I want you to be witnesses. And I want you to take this divine message into the world. To Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, to the remotest parts of the earth. They didn't even have mass transit. They, they couldn't get on an airplane and fly. They, the best they could do was hook a ride with a camel caravan. And hope they got where they wanted but they also had something else. And this is the most important thing. And if you're a believer in this room today, you have them as well. Notice what he says. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So do you have lips? you have feet? If you know Christ to Savior, Levi's got lips. He's back there raising his hand. You have lips, you have feet. If you know Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. So when you look at your neighbor, when he comes out of his door, you're like, you know what? I should talk to him about Christ. Do you have all the essential ingredients? Yes. As a believer, yes. Individually, you were given the task when you became a believer to spread the message. Is that the church's job? No. The church facilitates it. But this is an individual's job. In fact, I'm going to share a startling statistic with you a little bit later. But this is an individual's job. As a Christian, the gospel is taken with you wherever you go, and it should be faithfully spoken by you to everyone possible. Did this happen in Jerusalem? All of a sudden you have Acts chapter 2, thousands come to know Christ as Savior. The church explodes onto the scene. And then what do they do? We like Jerusalem. We don't want to leave Jerusalem. Even though Christ said, I should go to Judea, and then to Samaria, and then to the remotest parts of the earth, they said, no, we like Jerusalem. And so they started sharing and, and having all things in common, which sounds great until all of a sudden here comes persecution. Because God said, get out of here. You've got to spread this message. It's not for Jerusalem, it's for the world. My question is, are we spreading it where we go? As you look around this sanctuary this morning, and this is going to be an even more impactful statement than I originally thought it would be. Are you satisfied that the gospel has reached Goodland? Are there Christians here? Absolutely. Are you satisfied the gospel has reached Goodland? Can you look out at your neighbors and say, yes, they have heard the gospel message? You see, are we really then fulfilling the Great Commission? If a place that has Christians does not know Christ. Let me make it a little more personal. We've already discussed the, the feet and the lips. 
If you know Christ as Savior, you, unlike the saints of the Old Testament, also have the Holy Spirit. If you have everything necessary to be a witness, is it not our task to make them Christians? Or rather, it is not our task to make them Christians. But we need to share the gospel in such a way that they have no excuse not to be convinced. It is your job to share the gospel boldly, with compassion, and with elegance in such a manner that they have no reason to deny Christ. That is what it means what it means to understand our role, this task that is given. What about equipping believers? What about equipping believers? Turn to Matthew chapter twenty eight. Matthew twenty eight. This is familiar. This is nothing new for us. I just want to challenge us with a few things here. Matthew twenty eight. 19 and 20, it says, Go therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Heard an interesting statement uh, this week. Uh, this is a rabbit trail taken. Verse 20 says, Teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Verse 19 says the word go. And the statement that I heard is, say, is stated as no go, no low. So what does that mean? You don't go, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. No go, no lo. Uh, That's an easy way to remember it as our task to share the gospel. Uh, But as we equip believers, notice first that as you share the gospel, you are doing the work of discipleship. The next command given to the disciples is to do more than to be a witness. It is to equip. So what does it mean? There are two aspects. I'm not going to deal with every word in these two verses because we've already done so many times. But when we look at these Two specific commands. First is make disciples. Verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Did you know that that is not believers? You are not tasked with going and finding someone who already knows Christ and in this certain area and saying, okay, I want to drag you to church with me. Come on, let's go. I know you're not going to church over here uh, in our church, so I'm going to drag you over here. Our task is to make disciples. How did Jesus make disciples? Did he go to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the chief priests and, and say, you know what, you guys are religious, come on, let's go. No, he went to the sinners, the pagans, and said, I'm going to make out of you disciples. He chose 12 of them that he uh, took from the fishing nets to the tax collector. This is not discipleship as we generally understand it. The basic instruction here is that making disciples starts before one is a disciple. So discipleship starts from the moment you engage that first person in a conversation. So you take someone who doesn't know Christ as Savior and you begin to engage them in conversation. You know what your task as a Christian is? To turn that conversation to spiritual things. To make a disciple. One who's growing in their knowledge of Christ. The basic instruction is to make disciples before they are a disciple. You're sharing the gospel with an unbeliever, praying for and leading with patience and diligence is what Christ means by making disciples. The work of discipleship starts before they know Christ. You have been given the opportunity beyond the expression of words to lead someone to the foot of the cross. If you have ever led someone there, whether it's it's a child in Awana or Sunday school, or maybe your own child, or whether it's an adult, 
What an inexpressible gift that has been given to you to lead them to the foot of the cross. You can't save them. That's not your job. Your job is to bring them there. To set them at the foot of the cross. To remind them what Jesus did for them. To point to the empty tomb and remind them the victory that is there. That is making a disciple. When Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples, he wasn't saying go find the believers. He's saying go find the unbelievers. Turn them into disciples. And when you turn them into disciples, then you can teach them. Then you can teach them. And that is our next step. Make disciples, verse 19, verse 20, teach them. When they've come to know Christ as Savior, then you take that one who has turned from uh, sinner into disciple. Now you're ready to disciple them. Now you're ready to train them, to teach them. And this is what we normally think of when we talk about discipleship. Once someone has come to know Christ as Savior, we get them into the Word of God. We teach them and we instruct them on the ways of godliness. We teach them how to be a Christian, to participate in the church, to give of their gifts to the Lord in resources, talents, and time. As you look around our pews, as a church, we desire to grow. The only biblical way to do so is found right here in Matthew 28, 19, and 20. It's the only biblical way. We could go, as has been done to us, and go around to other churches in town and drag people to us. It's possible. We could have the the fanciest building. We could have the, the grandest music. We could have the most charismatic preacher. But is that growing a church? According to Matthew 28, 19 and 20, no. You go out and you find the, the sinner. You find the one who doesn't know Christ. And you make a disciple. And then when you've made that disciple, then you drag them to church. Then you have them participate in the body of Christ. Then you show them what it means to be a Christian and to be involved in the church and giving of, the, of themselves to the Lord. Make disciples. Then disciple them. That's what it means to equip believers. Make them when they're not yet born. And then turn them into disciples. So what about the plan? The plan. How are we going to make a plan for the future? First, ask. This is a challenge. When was the last time you asked someone if they knew Christ as Savior? Just think, just take a moment. When was the last time you asked somebody, anybody, if they knew Christ as Savior? You know it's disgusting? You can talk politics. You can talk weather. You can talk current events. The recent ailments that you are struggling with. And yet to talk about the Savior, that just doesn't come up. It's a shame that you can easily talk about Saddam Hussein. It's a shame that you can easily talk about the current politics or our president or Obamacare. And yet you are embarrassed to talk about our Christ. Look at Acts chapter 17. I want to show you an example of a man who used his lips, his feet, and the power of the Holy Spirit. Acts 17. Acts 17, verses 16 and 17. The scripture says this, 
Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. I'm going to give you the example of what what Paul does. Now, is Paul any different than you and I? Well, you say, well, well, Paul was an apostle. He's a giant of the faith. He's uh, wrote most of the New Testament. Well, that is all accurate. But when you read 1 Corinthians and you read what Paul views himself as, he says, I'm the lowest of the low, except by the grace of God. He goes, I am who I am, except by the grace of God. When we look at what Paul does here, notice what he does because it's going to help you and I in our evangelism. Paul's just waiting around, verse 16. He's having, he's just left Berea. Because of the persecution. He had persecution following him from Thessalonica all the way into Berea. And so he's going from town to town and this mob keeps following him and inciting people against him. And so he's with Paul or he's with Silas and he's with Timothy and Timothy and Silas have been left behind. Paul goes on to Athens and he could say, you know what? I've been working hard. I've been persecuted greatly. I'm in Athens. I'm going to enjoy this cultural experience. I'm going to kick back in my motel. I'm going to enjoy the hot springs. I'm going to enjoy uh, the finest food and beverages that this city, this great city has to offer. And yet as Paul is sitting there and he's watching the events of the city, notice his spirit. His spirit was being provoked within him. The motivation is right here. Paul is sitting down or walking around Athens, one or the other, and as he's he's moving into the bustling marketplace, and his spirit's provoked within him. How many times has this happened to you? I won't ask how many times have you denied it, but how many times has this happened to you? You're engaged in a conversation, and your mind and your heart are yanking at you saying, engage it in a Christian way. Engage it in the gospel message. This is what's going on with Paul right now. This is your spirit saying, you know what, as we're talking about these things, I ought to talk about Christ. I've been in so many conversations, and I'm going to be honest with you, I've walked away from so many conversations where my spirit is screaming at me, turn the conversation to spiritual things. And I don't do it. But Paul listens to it. Unlike many of us, he listens to that provoking. And notice what he does. Verse 17. So his spirit's provoking him. Verse 17. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. So Paul says, you know what? i got to find me a place to have a conversation. And so he goes into the synagogues and he starts talking to the Jews. He goes, you know what? I'm still feeling provoked. So he goes to the God-fearing Gentiles and he begins a conversation with them. He's still feeling provoked. So he's walking around the marketplace and he goes, look, there's people. And he begins to engage in a conversation with them. Sharing the gospel message. He strikes up conversations that lead to a clear, practical understanding of the gospel. And when you can read through that rest of that because he walks down, Paul is very clear as he walks through, he establishes where they're at. He moves them through the truth of who Christ is and he offers Christ to them. Do you engage in conversations with the sole purpose of sharing the gospel? 
Paul did. Paul did. Are you given any other command different than Paul in regards to the gospel? Paul had the same command as you and I do. Be witnesses in Judea, or rather in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the remotest parts of the earth. That's the same command you and I have. If that is the same command, should we not be doing the same thing? Sharing the gospel. Ask. Talk to people. Ask if they know Christ as Savior. Ask if they know what it means. Sometimes you're going to get shot at a bit. But Paul asked anyway. Can you imagine? Paul could have come into Athens and said, You know what? These people, they are chasing me from one place to another. I can't go anywhere without this angry mob following me, ready to kill me. But Paul can't even stand the sight of people without starting a conversation to spiritual things. When was the last time you walked into Walmart just aching for an opportunity to share the gospel? When was the last time you walked down a busy street just aching for an opportunity to share the gospel? That was Paul's motivation all the time. And you and I should be no different. It does not matter if you have the gift of evangelism. It does not matter if you have the desire to talk to people. What I enjoy about this in verse 16 is that Paul had to have had jitters. This is Paul. He's sitting here watching all these people and he doesn't just naturally go do it. His spirit has to provoke him to do it. He listens to his spirit, but there's these jitters. He is listening to his spirit and despite the jitters in his stomach, despite the intimidating uh or the immediate, the intimidating crowds and the immediate sweating, he engages everyone he sees. From the Jew to the God-fearing Gentiles to those on the streets buying and selling goods, he engages in that. Next, invite. You see, it's only, as a Christian, evangelism is one part of it. The next part is, after you've made the disciple, now you've got to teach them. Well, how do you teach them? Well, you invite them. Next week, we're going to get a look at Hebrews 10. But as a precursor to that, do you invite people to church? People that you've been sharing the gospel with. People that you've been meeting on the street. You're inviting them to church. If the answer is no, what is it going to take? What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Are you waiting for the good music? Are you waiting for the charismatic preacher? Are you waiting for uh, the immaculate buildings? shouldn't be. Do you know that Christians who are not growing, not attending a good Bible teaching church, are needing you to ask them and to invite them? As Christians, we need the fellowship of other Christians. What is preventing you from inviting them to church with you? A recent statistic, one I mentioned a few moments ago, shares that 9% of people will choose their church based on the architecture of the church. It's a beautiful building, immaculate, it's clean inside, 9%. 13% is based upon denominational ties. In other words, you grew up Baptist, so you're going to stay Baptist. 13%. 3% are 
is because the pastor came and spoke with them. 3%. Based on a friend's recommendation. So when you look around our church today and you ask the question, are we doing our job? I can only do 3%. That means for every two people that choose a building based on architecture, I can influence one. And yet in our culture, and this isn't unique to our church, this is culture. In our culture, we leave it to the professionals. We leave it to the pastor. Well, is that what Christ said in Acts 1? Is that what Christ said in Matthew 28? No. Our job is to share the gospel and to invite them to participate in the training of all that Christ has commanded us. I can do 3%. I can build my own friendships. In fact, most of those who I've been able to influence to the church have been because of friendships, not because I was the pastor. According to this statistic, I can only influence three people. But as we will see next week, people who are involved faithfully in the church, fellowship, it is a vital step in their health and well-being. If you want to be healthy as a Christian, you will be doing what Paul did in Athens. You will be sharing the gospel. You will be hitting them where it hurts at any cost. Would you rather have them a friend for an earthly period knowing that you have never shared the gospel with them? Or would you rather have them be an enemy for a time and come to know Christ as Savior? Paul said, I'm not here to build friendships. I'm here to build friendships so that I can share the gospel. I'm here to build friendships so that I can move into that next conversation to share the gospel with them. So we ask, we invite, finally, we disciple. Discipleship before salvation and after salvation is incredibly difficult. But Christ reveals it is necessary. The thrust of Paul's many letters to various churches reveal that Paul was deeply concerned about the growth and the faithful practice of the fledgling church. This new little church is just beginning to grow. As believers, we are all well equipped to begin the process. But in many ways, it is a collective effort to grow a baby Christian into a mature Christian. And that takes a body. It takes a local church. So before we can fully understand our purpose, we must understand how we all fit together. And that's where we're going to be next week. In the next couple of months, it's going to become clear as to what we as a body will do to fulfill our purpose. The question is, Are you ready to face a new year in obedience to the Word of God? In many ways, the church is just the facilitator of these things. The church is the facilitator, the the encouragement to keep you evangelizing, the encouragement to keep you discipling. The church is the facilitator of those things. The individual is the doer of those things. You are individually responsible to reach people and to equip believers. The question is, are you doing it? And if not... Will you not just make it a New Year's resolution? Because that may last through the month of January. Will you make it a life change? Will you become like the Apostle Paul and say, every conversation I engage in, I want to lead to spiritual things? I've got a good friend 
who is pastor in Salina, and he and I were having a conversation uh, when we were in Michigan, and we were uh, at the IFCA National Convention. And if there was any place where you would expect a bunch of pastors to let their hair down, that would be the place. And we were having a conversation in the lobby. And this gal, who had probably a little too much to drink at the bar, uh, came up uh, to him. And he had this shirt that said, follow me. And he had, it was from a camping ministry he was a part of. It said, follow me. And she comes up to him and says, where are we going? And I thought, oh boy. This gal does not know the conversation she just started. And he shared the gospel with her clearly and passionately as fast as he could, as she retreated as fast as she could. Do you have conversations where you can turn a message on a shirt to spiritual things? You see... That was at a pastor's conference. And if there was any place for him to say, you know what, I don't have to. I'm not in Salina. I'm not even in Kansas. I'm in Michigan. This person's probably never going to go to Kansas. Well, some of you have, but you may never go to Kansas. That, that You could tell from the moment she said, where are we going? He was like, I know, and we're going to get there fast. It never once crossed his mind that I should not lead this conversation to spiritual things. I love that about individuals. I love that about believers. But it's not because I love it that we should do it. It's because it's our command from our Savior God. The one who we get to celebrate in this table before me. As we consider our task, as we consider this great command, we must first repent. Because we are not doing our job. And it doesn't matter how many times we've shared the gospel. It doesn't matter how many people we've shared the gospel. There is many, many, many more in Goodland, Kansas, that do not know the gospel. Tammy shared with just just a moment ago that when you look at our area, there's not very many praying for revival. And while it may be a, a lack of population, the reality is that the lack of population is known by the lack of believers who are willing to stand on their faith. Are you willing to stand on your faith? Are you willing to engage the conversation, to lead it to spiritual things, and no matter if they're backpedaling as fast as they can, you share every bit of it so that they know the full gospel. As we come before this table, you can do nothing less. When you understand what is represented here for the believers, for the church, we have one promise, and that is eternal life. And it is because of this table that you have eternal life. And it is because somebody took the time with you to share it with their lips, to come to you on their feet, and to be led by the Holy Spirit to share it with you. Will you do that to somebody else? As I close in a word of prayer, let's be reflective of what that is going to look like. Let's be proactive in making sure that we do it. And let's be faithful in making sure that it gets done. Let's pray. Father, as we bow our heads before you today, we recognize that we can do no less than the commands that were given to us in Acts 1 and Matthew 28. Lord, so often we leave this with the missionaries. They're going to go off and spread the gospel. But what staggers me 
is in Acts chapter 1, you said that we are to be witnesses. And that means where we are at at the present time. We are to be sharing the gospel. Lord, I know that personally I have failed so many times. I pray that you would empower the opportunities that I would take them boldly to share the gospel. And I pray that for each and every single one of us in this room who knows you as Savior, that we will never leave a conversation without moving it to spiritual things to the best of our ability. Lord, may we be found faithful in doing the job that you left us to do, not as those children who hurry up and try to get it done all the, uh, as soon as they hear the garage door open, not as those children who hurry up and get it done and go lay on the couch not, not having done it well, but as those faithful, obedient disciples like Paul who look for opportunities, look for people that he can start a conversation with. May we do the same thing. And because of that, I pray that you would bring growth to our local body, that you'd bring growth to us as individual believers, that you would cause us to be healthy and reproducing as Christians. Lord, we love you. We thank you for it. In your son's name I pray. Amen.